On July 21st, 1961, Gus Grissom became the third person to fly to space and the second American with a suborbital flight in his Mercury capsule, dubbed Liberty Bell 7. This week, we're going to celebrate the 60th anniversary of that flight by taking a deeper dive into the history of that flight. And to do this, we're joined by Jim Remar, the president and CEO of the Cosmosphere Museum in Hutchinson, Kansas, who played a special role in the recovery and restoration of the Liberty Bell capsule after it was lost to the bottom of the sea. Please get in touch with your thoughts about this mission. We're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. There is also a contact form on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page too. We're at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, please enjoy episode 46 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 46. Hey, Emily, just a couple of things before we get started. Number one, you posted a photo this week, which really made me smile. It was a year ago this week that we did our pilot episode for the podcast. Yes, it was. Um, it I, I was surprised it, because I was like, it doesn't seem like that long ago, no. but it really was. We were working on this a year ago, and um, I'm a little shocked at how much we've done in just a year. I mean, we've interviewed some amazing guest including our guest today so we've done a lot and i'm very proud of the work we've done so here's to more years yeah absolutely absolutely but uh obviously we're, we're not going to rush through this but I, I don't want to dwell on things for too long today emily because you're off to space fest in the morning and i know you need a good night's sleep yes uh i leave tomorrow morning around 8 a.m uh here and i get to tucson at about noonish their time because they're on a three-hour difference but I really can't wait to see everybody there. Uh, I, it's people that, uh, not just me, but we, none of us have seen each other since this uh, this COVID happened. I, I'm just so freaking excited. I can't hardly contain myself. Just going in an airplane and getting a, a, a like a little can of Coke in the airplane will be like, oh, this is like freedom, <laughs> you know? So it'll be fun. And I do have the uh, panel that I'm moderating on Friday and the talk on Saturday morning. So I'm really I'm I'm ready. I'm all I'm already packed. Everything's ready to go. So, yep. I can't wait to see all the photos and hear all the stories because uh, I'm going to be living this vicariously through you. Yeah, and I promise for our listeners, I will be taking a lot of photos and uh, trying to document it as well as I can. It'll be awesome. So I'm really looking forward to From it. From the moment you you came on tonight, you had a smile on your face that was bigger than normal. I could tell you were excited. At work today, they were like, are you even like focusing? And I'm like, yeah, but this sounds so dumb. My face hurts. And it, like later this afternoon, I was like, why is my face hurt so bad? Like I was like, did I do I need like a Coke or like caffeine or or something like that? Like, you know, because I get headaches sometimes. And then I was like, it's because I've been smiling. The muscles in my face started to hurt. I'm dead serious. I, I hear you. I hear you. So ya. I'm really looking forward to it. Anyway, yeah. So with that in mind, let's let's get on with the show so you can get some sleep. Let's crack yep. on. Yes, as, let's do that. As the Englishman said. Yes. <laughs> okay, relax. Everything's okay. On July 21st, 1961, Gus Grissom climbed into the Liberty Bell 7 Mercury space capsule on top of a Redstone rocket and was launched into space on a suborbital flight, which lasted 15 minutes and 37 seconds, 
reaching an apogee of 102.75 nautical miles and landing 262.7 nautical miles downrange from the launch site in Cape Canaveral in the Atlantic Ocean. The flight had gone to plan at that point, but while waiting to be picked up by the recovery helicopter, the hatch blew off and water started coming into the capsule. Gus exited as soon as he could and was treading water in the sea whilst they were trying to recover the capsule. Now, due to the excess weight of all the water coming in, this was becoming impossible. And in the meantime, Gus's suit was also filling with water, making it harder for him to stay afloat. He was rescued by a second helicopter, but the capsule was lost to the sea, plunging to a depth of about 16,800 feet, or 3.2 miles. The explosive hatch could be triggered both inside and outside the spacecraft, and in the aftermath of the flight, Gus was accused of blowing this hatch without permission, thus causing the loss of the spacecraft. He denied this and insisted he was sitting in the capsule minding his own business at the time it happened. An independent technical review of the incident took place from August to October that year, and it raised doubts that he had blown the hatch. Three flights later, Wally Shira blew the hatch of his Sigma-7 spacecraft once he was on board the recovery ship and, in doing so, injured his hand on the trigger as there was quite a kickback. Uh, Gus never had any visible injuries, so this was considered proof enough that he hadn't blown the hatch, although the astronaut office was already satisfied that he hadn't. As I'm sure many of you are aware, Gus died in the Apollo 1 fire in January 1967, but he did fly again as commander of the first Gemini flight in March 1965, where he finally got to orbit the Earth three times alongside John Young. Fifteen years after his death, the movie The Right Stuff, which was based on the Tom Wolfe book of the same name, dramatised the mission and the portrayal of Gus and the incident have allowed the idea that he blew the hatch to continue to exist and even grow which is rather unfair for someone who had died 15 years earlier but alas true space fans have been doing what they can to dispel that myth ever since in fact emily wrote a great article on this in a national space society blog back in january 2016 and i will be posting the links to that in the show notes for you to read thank you we have also been made aware there will be a piece of work being published which may help to finally solve this mystery. Uh, some of you might be aware of the work of Andy Saunders, who restores old photographs and footage and brings them to life. These recently have been picked up by major news outlets around the anniversaries of various flights. Uh, for example, he recently posted an analysis of how far Alan Shepard's golf balls landed on the moon uh, during the Apollo 14 moon landing. His work is wonderful, and you all should follow him on Twitter at Andy Saunders underscore one. Anyway, he has a book coming out next year called Apollo Remastered, which is available for pre-order in the UK and US. Uh, you can check the show notes for that. And Dave was talking to him about coming on the podcast to talk about that when he was told of this new development. Yes, Andy told me that this new work was undertaken with Grissom biographer George Leopold and Kurt Newport, who helped raise the capsule from the bottom of the ocean years later. It will be published on astronomy.com on the 20th of July, the day before the anniversary, and it's likely that there will be a full webcast on the NASA history page on the 21st. He thinks that they've got a full plausible scenario as to what happened, and the work has been peer-reviewed by Dr. Robert Voas, a Mercury trainer, and Dean Purdy, who helped design the capsule. So keep your eyes peeled for that on Andy's Twitter page, and we'll be sharing that on our social media pages as well. So as Dave just suggested, uh, Liberty Bell 7 did eventually get raised from the ocean floor on July 20th, 1999. 
by a team led by Kurt Newport and financed by the Discovery Channel. It was taken to the Cosmosphere in Kansas to be restored. Since then, the spacecraft has been on a number of tours, but currently resides back at the Cosmosphere. So I was fortunate enough to have a private viewing experience of Liberty Bell 7 back in July 2019 when it was in the restoration centre of the Cosmosphere, which is known as Spaceworks. And today we are joined by the CEO and President of the Cosmosphere, Jim Remar, to talk more about the recovery and restoration of that craft. Welcome, Jim Remar. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Liberty Bell 7. Uh, before we get started with that, can you just briefly introduce yourself and let us know how you ended up at the Cosmosphere and, sure. and give us a little summary about the museum and Spaceworks? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Jim Remar, uh, President and CEO of the Cosmosphere. Uh, I grew up here in Hutchinson, um, actually uh, uh, moved away, um, went to school, uh, actually had my first job in a museum in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania, uh, at an old buggy factory of all places. <laughs> wow. um, so I had the opportunity to come back uh, to work at the Cosmosphere in 2000. I skipped a few modes of transportation, went from horse-drawn vehicles to uh, rockets. <laughs> um, and so I was here, uh, been here uh, over 17 and a half years. Uh, the Cosmosphere uh, houses the largest collection uh, of U.S. Uh, space exploration artifacts outside of the Smithsonian and the largest collection uh, of the former Soviet artifacts outside of Moscow. And so we're really the only museum in the world that tells the, the definitive story of the space race from both sides. Uh, also have um, an incredible um, education department with robust uh, STEM education offerings. Uh, and then a division of the Cosmosphere known as Spaceworks as uh, the fabrication, replication, and restoration branch. Uh, they have done restoration work uh, for groups all over the country, exhibitry for groups all over the world. Uh, they restored Liberty Bell 7. They did the restoration work of Apollo 13. Uh, they built uh, most of the set props and hardware for the movie Apollo 13. Uh, did the F1 conservation for Bezos Expeditions, a phenomenal um, group of technicians that uh, really does marvelous work as far as preserving uh, the artifacts um, that we all know, but also creating exhibits to tell the story of, of space exploration. So how did the Cosmosphere end up being involved with the restoration of Liberty Bell 7, and were you involved with the recovery? So that's a, a great question. Um, the Cosmosphere uh, began its efforts back in the 80s. Um, so at the time, all the flown Mercury spacecraft were on display at various museums throughout the country. Uh, the Cosmosphere wanted a flown Mercury, and really the only one that was available was Liberty Bell 7. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Liberty Bell was um, resting uh, 16,000 feet uh, below the, the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so the Cosmosphere, working with uh, Kurt Newport, who's a deep sea salvage expert, um, began doing research um, about potentially where Liberty Bell would be located. They studied the, the wind, the um, waves, um, really everything to try and figure out where it was located. Um, and so it was 
the cosmosphere that continued to pursue and persist. Um, and fortunately, um, by the late 90s, 99, uh, the Discovery Channel um, stepped forward with funding. And so the Discovery Channel funded um, Oceaneering, uh, Kurt Newport and the Cosmosphere then utilized those years of research um, to finally go out and set a foot to, to recover the spacecraft. Unfortunately, I arrived right before the spacecraft went on a national tour. <laughs> um, so I got to touch it um, before it left, um, but was not involved in the restoration. Well, I'm sure you have heard all the stories since though. So what were the challenges with that restoration? What condition was the capsule in? And did you have to replace any parts for display purposes? Yeah, that's a great question. The The capsule uh, sank in, in 61. Um, so it resided on the bottom of the Atlantic uh, for 38 years. Unfortunately, the, the capsule was in pretty poor condition when they were able to locate it. Um, there's a lot of um, electricity generated at those depths. Um, fortunately, the beryllium heat shield um, was the sacrificial lamb. It acted like a, an anode um, battery. And so that electrolytic activity um, attacked uh, the heat shield, um, but then began attacking um, the interior components, the, the main control panels, um, which were made up of uh, magnesium. And so uh, there was a lot of corrosion from salt um, on the exterior and then a lot of um, deterioration from not only salt, but the electrolytic activity. Um, when they brought her up, uh, she was in pretty rough shape. And so the restoration was, was gonna present significant challenges. Uh, first, what we had to do um, was, was really rid the craft of the salt. Um, so for a period of, of about a month, she was continually flushed with, with water to try and get that salt out. Um, then uh, literally every single um, component was taken apart. Um, the shingles were removed, the, the interior uh, switches and gauges, instrumentation were all removed, the parachute was removed, literally everything was disassembled. Um, at that point, uh, the craftsman began the, the painstaking measures of, of removing the corrosion, even often using dental picks and Dremel tools and things of that nature. Uh, once they determined that they had removed the corrosion, they then had to stabilize. Uh, so they put a corrosion inhibitor uh, on all of the parts uh, and then painstakingly put the spacecraft back together. And miraculously, um, we really didn't have to replicate uh, too many of the parts. Um, there were two primary parts that were replicated. Uh, the main control panel um, that Gus would have seen that would have been right in front of him uh, had been gunned to severely deteriorated going right to left. So a portion of that control panel on the right side um, was replicated so we could put the gauges and instrumentation back in their proper place. And then the joystick, um, Gus's joystick um, was also replicated. But other than that, everything you see um, in that spacecraft is original to, that, to the craft. So was there anything inside uh, that was recovered that holds some uh, historical significance? And was there any discoveries you all made about the mission or maybe Gus himself? So that's a, a great question, Emily. There were a lot of fun things we were able to discover um, during the course of the restoration. Um, so when the craft was brought up, uh, it was literally full of sand and, and muck and um, debris um, from the ocean. So they dug their hand in there and, and they found uh, dimes. And so they were initially like, well, that's really strange. Why are there dimes in the spacecraft? 
Um, so as they began to clean the interior, um, they found a lot of souvenirs. Um, there were 52 uh, mercury head dimes uh, that Gus uh, had taken with him. These were taken uh, to be mementos, and he was going to give to, to friends, family, uh, the launch crew, the other astronauts. Uh, we found five silver certificates, so dollar bills. Uh, some were uh, wrapped um, in the wiring harnesses. Uh, in fact, one was signed by the launch crew. Um, and it's interesting. So you think of the, the launch crew guys uh, as being these great engineers. Well, they misspelled launch. They spelled it Lanch. Um, so there's the silver certificate signed by the, the Lanch crew. Um, but then also wow. uh, his Randall knife um, was, was found. So each one of the original Mercury 7 had their survival knife, a very large um, survival knife um, that was found. Uh, surprisingly, a cigarette butt was found. Um, so apparently during the course of, of the clean environment, uh, there was maybe not quite as much a, a clean environment as, as one would have thought. Uh, and then part of his uh, survival kit uh, was also intact. And one of the coolest pieces um, that uh, survived was a tiny package of dial soap. Um, so if you, you go to a hotel and they have the, the little soap there, um, that's that's what this was. It was a tiny package of dial soap and, and all of that survived. So a couple of mementos that were taken up to, to be given out and then his survival kit. So it was pretty exciting for the technicians to be able to positively identify and, and really chase the stories back. Um, they at, talked to engineers and, and people who were a part of it and were able to verify that, yes, Gus indeed did take these up as mementos or the launch crew placed these in the crowd as mementos mm -hmm. um so it was, it was pretty cool or the lanch crew took them in yeah <laughs> the lanch the crew, exactly yeah the lanch crew <laughs> took them in awesome amazing that is so cool uh so the, the capsule is is currently on display in the museum for the 60th anniversary are there still challenges to keeping this capsule on display and restored does it need does it need constant attention i'm guessing so that, that, that's a great question um so the the capsule having been exposed uh, to, to seawater um, for 38 years um, presented some some significant challenges during the course of the restoration. During the period um, after the restoration, even to this day, um, we're always concerned about the reemergence of corrosion. Um, fortunately, that hasn't taken place, which is a testament to the technicians that worked on it. Um, but what we have to do is routinely check it, inspect it, um, but then we display the capsule in its own display case. Um, it's a it's a sealed display case um, with LED lighting, um, and it also has its own climate-controlled uh, environment. It has um, a, a filtration system that pumps clean air in and pulls um, the, the, the internal air out so it it circulates the air so um, the off-gassing doesn't begin to, to attack the artifact. Um, so if we didn't display it in that type of environment, probably corrosion would eventually begin to set in, but it always has 24-7 um, around the clock, no matter where it's at, its own internal um, environmental control system. Wow. <laughs> that's uh yeah that's that's going to be expensive to run as well isn't it it's not going to be <laughs> it is but it's it's worth it absolutely so what what's your big takeaway from the the mission of liberty bell 7 and also the fact that you found it and you managed to restore it. The mission itself was textbook. Um, I, I think we all know Gus Grissom was one of the best. 
Uh, and the fact that, um, unfortunately, uh, he was portrayed as potentially having panicked uh, and prematurely blown the hatch just, just doesn't hold water. We know that the other astronauts who detonated the hatch uh, had a bruise on their forearm. Grissom did not have a bruise on his forearm. Um, this is one of the, the most coolest cats under pressure that, that anyone would know. And, and so he absolutely would not have panicked. Um, textbook flight, by all account, um, again, uh, a suborbital flight, um, but it was the early stages of trying to determine what um, space would do to, to the human um, body. Interesting, it's, it's kind of um, fun to watch what's going on today with Sir Richard Branson on Sunday and then um, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin coming up next week because they're basically replicating what Alan Shepard and, and Gus Grissom did in those initial flights. And so it's, it's kind of fun to see that go full circle. Um, but then to, to be able to, to locate the craft, um, again, against a lot of uh, uncertainty, uh, tremendous obstacles and hurdles, um, to be able to find the craft and, and locate it, um, but then to restore and preserve it, um, to me, it's, it's hopefully going to serve as inspiration to the future. Um, here's where yeah. we were. Here's where we're going. Um, here's a testament to history. Um, and, and we're honored to be able to have preserved it, to be able to have restored it and share it with the public for future generations. Awesome. I'm glad you brought up the hatch blowing incident because that, for me as a space writer, that is one of the most annoying myths to hear about in the I hate I, I hate it. I do too. And unfortunately, um, the, the the crew, had they um, had more time, they were going to search for the hatch. Um, they had found uh, the spacecraft in April. And then during the course of bringing it up, um, the seas were rough and the tether to the ROV um, was severed. And so they had to go back to port, um, had a new ROV constructed, and then went back and, and, and recovered the craft because they lost that time, they were never able to recover the hatch. So the hatch still resides at the bottom of the ocean is a mystery, but I think we all know that um, Gus would not have panicked in that yeah, situation. Absolutely. So let's say, uh, hypothetically, let's say Gus Grissom had survived 1967. Let's say Apollo 1 hadn't happened or something like that. Um, hypothetically, what do you think Gus Grissom's career may have looked like had he survived? Yeah, great question, Emily. Um, I don't have anything to substantiate or document this, um, but I firmly believe had Gus survived, he would have been the commander uh, on Apollo 11 and, and the first person to, to touch foot on, on the moon. Um, his career path um, was, was on that trajectory, uh, even though um, he uh, overcame the, the Liberty Bell incident, uh, he was chosen uh, to be the, the commander of the first Gemini mission. He was chosen to be the commander of the first Apollo mission. Uh, his colleagues and peers viewed him as one of the best. And so it's very likely that he would have been the first person to set foot on the moon, which, as we all know, would have would have sent uh, uh, his star power and career path into a, a different trajectory or orbit, pun intended. <laughs> all right. That's awesome. So the Cosmosphere is rightfully considered as being one of the uh, great air and space museums with so many wonderful artifacts including the uh, the Apollo 13 command module and the Gemini 10 capsule. I'm guessing it's probably been really difficult for you guys over the last year, uh, given the remote location of the museum. You know, is it a constant struggle to keep the museum going normally? And how have you all managed in the last year and a half or so with this 
pandemic going on. <laughs> well, so we're located in Hutchinson, Kansas. Great community, but a population of 40,000. Um, we're not near a, a, a major metropolitan area. Quite honestly, a, a museum of this caliber probably isn't in a community of 40,000 people. Regardless of how much capital we invest into the into the facility, we're only going to draw a finite number of people because of our location. Um, so generally, year in and year out, it, it is challenging. Um, we have one of the finest collections of artifacts in the world, and um, it's a challenge at times to, to get uh, people here to see those. Um, COVID in, in 2020 and in the first part of 21 threw us a huge curveball. Um, so you take a already challenging situation and you introduce a, a global pandemic to it and, and it really <laughs> creates, creates some problems. Um, I've got a great staff here though and we adapted quickly. Um, we began to offer um, virtual um, programming, much like what we're doing here. Um, we worked very hard um, and deliberately uh, to ensure that we could continue um, to provide the experiences um, allowed by local mandates and state mandates, um, and just slowly and methodically um, continue to, to work to, to get back to, to where we were. We learned something though, um, in my opinion, uh, opportunity can come out of crisis. And, and we realized that there's a need um, for this type of programming. And so we began to develop different virtual um, and digital programming and um, actually are getting ready to, to launch um, what we call our Launch Next um, virtual platform um, that will allow us to share the museum with people all over the, all over the country. More importantly, it will allow us to introduce STEM education virtually um, to schools, not only here in the state, but nationally and globally. Um, so we've really begun to develop a business out of that. And maybe if the pandemic hadn't happened, um, we wouldn't be in that position. So, um, and fortunately we were able to um, get COVID relief funds um, that help sustain uh, the operation. And I will tell you, um, we are having a phenomenal summer. Uh, we had uh, the best June uh, in the last five or six years and on our track to have the best July in the last five or six years. So while the pandemic hurt um, it, it, and we were down for a bit, we weren't out. Um, and quite honestly, we're probably better than we were prior to the pandemic. Do, do you think some of that is because of all the, the activity that's going on in space in the world at the moment? There's so much activity. Absolutely. Um, for us, anytime space is in the media, um, that's great for us. Um, and we're able to capitalize on it. Um, let's be honest, space is cool again. People yeah. are into space. Um, I saw you wearing a NASA shirt, Emily. You, you walk down the street and, and you go to uh, various places and cities and people are wearing NASA gear. Um, when's the last time we saw that? People are talking about space. It's in the media. Um, so absolutely, it's, it's where we're at today, in my opinion, is similar to where we were at when Gus Grissom and Alan Shepard and Yuri Gagarin went up in, in the early 60s. We're right back there and, and we're on the cusp, I think, mm -hmm. of some great things. Um, and so it's exciting again. And we're trying to, to obviously educate and exhibit about that, but also capitalize on it and utilize the, the current buzz um, to get people here to the cosmosphere to learn about the past, the present and the future of space. That's 
exploration. Fantastic. And, and obviously, as you said, Spaceworks is another division of the Cosmosphere, uh, which is based on the other side of town. Town's not that big, but it's the other side of town and undertakes the restoration work, as you explained earlier. Um, has that work been able to carry on over the last year and a half? You know, it has. Um, we didn't do a lot in 20, um, but fortunately in 21, um, we've been able to, to do some projects, uh, um, done some work for the, the National Air and Space Museum. There's a mu- museum just um, uh, south of here in Wichita. Uh, it's it's Dock the B-29, one of only two operational and flying B-29s in existence. Uh, we've done some exhibitory work for them. Uh, the team's uh, getting ready to travel to Sao Paulo, Brazil um, to uh, do some work uh, for a, a traveling exhibit down there. Um, We're getting ready to do some of our own work. Um, In August, we're going to redo our our Redstone, Sputnik, and Kennedy Theater galleries. Um, So our team will be working uh, in that. And then there's some promising opportunities on the horizon for 22. So um, while 20 dealt a blow to Spaceworks and we had to lay some of the Spaceworks team off, um, 21 came back. uh, And then we see getting back to to a, a high level in 22. Fantastic. Fantastic. So what is your favorite artifact in the museum or at the museum or in the vault? Yep. Uh, great question. Um, my favorite artifact uh, is the white room, uh, the Apollo era white room. Mm. Um, so for, for those uh, who are familiar with, with the Saturn V, um, the, the Apollo launch vehicle was taken out on, on a launch umbilical tower uh, on top of a crawler. Uh, there were three of, of these launch umbilical towers. Um, the astronauts would then ride an elevator up, uh, walk the, the gantry, and come into what is called the white room. Uh, the white room uh, was where the command module was mated. Um, the astronauts would do their final check suit checks, say their goodbyes, and then they were inserted into the spacecraft. Um, so we have one of three white rooms. Um, and for me, just to stand in that room um, and to think about what was going on, the emotions that played out um, is awe-inspiring. Um, so that's absolutely my favorite artifact in the museum. Do you know what missions it was used for? No, we don't. So unfortunately, so there's three white rooms. Um, one's on display at Kennedy. Uh, we have one, and then I can't remember if the other one's at Johnson Space. I think it's at Johnson Space Center. Unfortunately, the, the archival documentation doesn't exist, and so none of us are able to determine um, which of the missions uh, came through. We know a third of them did, but we don't know which ones. Well, it's an amazing artifact. I loved seeing it when I was there. Uh, anyway, talking of artifacts, if you could take one artifact from another museum to display at the Cosmosphere, what would it be? <laughs> I would uh, take Neil Armstrong's EVA suit from his Apollo 11 mission. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's a beautiful artifact. It's displayed so well. I, I, I would love to have a, a flown uh, lunar EVA suit on display here. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that'll ever happen. Yeah, there's only five of the 12 on display, but they're a nightmare to preserve, apparently. And they all need a lot of restoration. So it'll be interesting to see if the developments with uh, what they did with Neil Suit for, for the 50th anniversary, whether they'll be able to, to do the rest of them. And, and maybe then they'll be able to get let out. Anyway, you do have uh, Jim Lovell's uh, Apollo 13 suit, though, don't you, that would have walked on the moon? We do. Um, we have we have Jim Lovell's flown Apollo 13 suit here. And Ron Evans. Yep, Ron Evans flown Apollo 13. And then we also have uh, Mike Collins flown Gemini 10 suit. 
Yeah, and that, and that Ron Evans suit is, you know, Apollo 17, Deep deep Space EVA. That's a pretty yeah. cool artifact. Exactly. Cool. It's cool. And we, we have the full, uh, we have his gloves uh, and bubble helmet from that as well. And then, and then we also have Wally Shiraz um, Mercury suit. Wow. And they look wonderful as well. Yeah, oh, they're, they're beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, finally, just to wrap up, what, what are you doing at the museum to uh, to celebrate the, the 60th of, of Liberty Bell 7? Obviously, you've got it on display, but have you got any events both in the flesh and any virtual stuff? You talked about obviously doing more stuff online. Yeah, so we're, we're going to do a Thursday. On this Thursday, I'm going to give a presentation um, on Liberty Bell 7 for our regular coffee at the cause. Um, and this is the first time we're in person since uh, COVID. So nice. we're excited to, to be presenting in person. So that'll be live and streaming. Um, and then next week, um, we're doing uh, some presentations and programming uh, during the, the, the anniversary. And then we're doing a joint um, program uh, with NASA. Um, so it's Mercury to Artemis. Um, so we'll talk about Liberty Bell 7, and then they'll talk about Artemis. So a lot of fun and uh, activities taking place uh, uh, this week and next celebrating Liberty Bell 7. Excellent. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us and spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. And this has been super insightful. So thank you very much. Thank you. This was awesome. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime. The story of that restoration is just crazy, isn't it? It is. I, I, I'm still amazed that they were able to restore it to such a decent condition after it had been on the essentially on the ocean bottom, three point something. I mean, three point odd miles. Quite that's quite a ways down. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's quite a depth there. I mean, it, it really is. And I was I'm really amazed that they were able to restore it to such a high fidelity, given that it spent so many decades down there i mean that that's really a testament not uh, not only to uh i think the mercury program and the and the robustness of the machines they were building at the time it's really a big testament to the people who got it off the ocean floor and the people at the cosmosphere who restored it yeah see i got a fun story here emily which i don't think Ooh. i've shared on the podcast before forgive me if i have so uh, i've talked a lot about this big trip i did in in july 2019 and but the plan was uh, over the course of 2019 to try and see all all the historic spacecraft now there were two which weren't on display skylab 4 which was being restored but fortunately in a public area where i could still see it from afar at the advar hazy center in in uh, just outside washington dc but the other one was liberty bell 7 which the cosmosphere had just got back from a different museum and was going to be in their res restoration center. So I sent them an email explaining what I was doing, explaining I was coming from the UK, explaining I was doing this ridiculous once-in-a-lifetime trip. And I said, is there any chance I can just like go behind the scenes and just pop my head around and say I've seen it? And the, the response came back, no. <laughs> so I decided to try again using every single bit of English charm I have, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> See, they told me that it was going to be on display later in the year, but obviously I was from London and 
I, there was no way I was going to be able to get over to Kansas. I had no reason to go through Kansas, and this was my own, potentially my only chance to ever see it. So I sent that second email and got another polite decline. But I decided that three would be the one. So I sent one more. I included screenshots of maps of the journey I was making and explained why I was doing it. And this time I got a response saying, okay, looking at all of this, I can see that the nature of this trip is quite something. So I'm going to speak to the people at Spaceworks to see if they'll let you in. And they did. Wow. Yep. So I let them know the day I was going to be there, spent the morning walking around the museum, having a great time. And then at about midday, I met up with a member of staff and we drove across town to Spaceworks where we were met by a guy called Don, who took me inside, pointed to Liberty Bell 7 and said, she's all yours. It was incredible. I could get as close as I liked and was just blown away by what I was seeing. I couldn't quite believe it. And, uh, there was what amazed me was there was still so much paint on the outside on the shingles, but the restoration work was also just so so good. And, and Don pointed a few things out that they did. Um, so the, on, the only thing that's missing is the heat shield. At the bottom, you have the remains of the landing bag, which was was hanging out, uh, which would have helped make the splashdown a little bit more gentle. So uh, I already had an affinity for all things Gus, and and I, you know, I think he's amazing. But having had this experience, it just enhanced all that. I'm so grateful for the museum for that. But yeah, I love Gus. He's the best. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a Gus freak myself because uh, I just feel like man, he he just deserves everything. He really does. That guy really was. He was just. Excuse my language. It's probably going to get censored. He was a total badass. I mean. He had just swagger. I mean, the Mercury guys all had swagger, but you could tell he was like, let's get to business and fly this spaceship. There's just something about him like that. Yeah, I was always intrigued that he picked John Young to be uh, his uh, pilot on Gemini 3. He probably saw something in Young that we would eventually discover that, you know, this guy can fly any dang, any spacecraft, you know? And of course, you know, more sadly, his he had an all-star crew for Apollo 1 as well, so... I wrote a story during uh, before the Apollo 11 anniversary, and it was for Quest magazine. What if Gus Grissom had lived? It's a little fantastic, you know, my dream fantasy of what his career would have looked like. But um, I I, th- I was very proud of the piece because I gave him what I thought he deserved. Yeah. But you also, you did a blog years ago, similar of similar theme, didn't you? Where the road would lead. I th- yeah, I uh, that was years ago. I actually based the quest story on that one. Right. Okay. My thoughts are, you know, he probably would have, you know, been the first to step on the moon's surface. Um, my thoughts is that he would have remained an astronaut, maybe like, you know, he would have p- perhaps flown, you know, the space shuttle. So, of course, me being me, I was like, let's put him on the first shuttle flight let's make him you know let's give him unfortunately let's give him the john young role for the first shuttle program i mean even though he'd be in his 50s by that point he could still he could still fly a plane you know so um yeah so that's kind of what i took it up to i had him flying throughout the space shuttle years and stuff and i think that makes sense as well because of the original seven mercury astronauts I think he was the one that had the most engineering pedigree or definitely the most interest in engineering that probably would have seen him uh, stay on at NASA even through the 70s when uh, that all they were doing was designing the space shuttle. I think definitely can see that happening in my opinion. Anyway, go, going back to the Cosmosphere, if anyone ever gets a chance to go there, do. If you're on some kind of weird road trip in America, 
try and include going through to Hutchinson in Kansas. It's just an incredible museum. It starts right at the beginning of rocketry and it takes you through it all chronologically. Oh, wow. Using all these incredible artifacts. Some of them are replicas, some of them are actual artifacts. And it, it tells a story and it covers both sides of what was going on in the Cold War and, and everything that's been going on in spaceflight. There's enough there that you could probably spend two or three days going through everything, probably more than that, uh, and you'd still be finding new stuff. I had to whiz around it in a few hours, uh, and I took so many photos, and I kept, over the rest of, the, of my trip, I kept going back to these photos I'd taken of everything and figuring out what it was I'd seen because I didn't have the time to really give it the, give it the time it deserved. So if you can give an extended stay to go there, then it's worth it. And also the little town it's in, Hutchinson, is such a beautiful beautiful place it's in the midwest in america and it's it's everything for an english boy it was everything i wanted from a small little town in the middle of kansas uh the architecture the food the people everything you know it was just wonderful so if you can get there please do yeah i'm embarrassed to say i have not been there yet and my experience with the midwest is very 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 limited so uh my goal is hopefully in 2022 i can save up enough uh money and I can go get out there and have a have a trip and uh, see the facility because everybody I mean everyone has told me you got to go to the Cosmosphere you got to go to the Cosmosphere and I'm like yeah I have to go to the Cosmosphere so <laughs> yeah I get it I'm very I get it <laughs> I'm, and I've been sort of slowly going you know to different centers the last couple of years you know and just sort of slowly you know saving up my money and going to them and stuff like that so I'm uh yeah my my plan hopefully is to hit that hit the cosmosphere in 2022 so it'll be cool maybe later this year if i can save up enough money who who knows i'm just i gotta go there <laughs> yeah you won't regret it either and it's just really great that jim gave up his time today to talk to us and uh, tell us more about the restoration of liberty bell 7 and the other things the museum is doing um I still am blown away that they found all that stuff in the capsule as well. Soap. How does how does a small bar of soap, I know it's wrapped up, but how does that survive being in the ocean for 30 years? Absolutely blows my mind. So thanks to Jim uh, for joining us. And in the show notes, I will put links to the museum so you can maybe check out what's on their store uh, or any of their online events, which you may be able to watch or participate in. But uh, yeah, check out the Cosmosphere. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. Okay, since we last spoke, there have been two launches. In China, a Long March 6 rocket was launched on Friday the 9th of July by the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, placing a commercial remote sensing satellite into orbit. And I have no idea what that means. And the other launch, which you may have seen something about over the weekend, but... Uh, Probably not. No one was talking about it anywhere. Was the <laughs> Virgin... Is it Virgin Galactic? Is that how you say it? Anyway, suborbital launch of their Spaceship 2 space plane. I didn't hear about this at all. <laughs> the VSS Unity. Uh, it, this successfully took six people into space, including the founder of Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson, on the first fully crewed flight of the vehicle. We talked about this at length last week, so if you want to find out more about the mission in the history of the company, please check last week's show. But there have been some amazing videos from the flight, which Dave will put in the show notes, I'm sure. So check the website for those. Uh, Branson certainly tried his best to make it an inspiring show with a little speech before being uh, set free from his seat in uh, microgravity. Uh, perhaps a little corny. It, it got both of us going a little bit. Yep. 
And uh, it certainly makes the idea of going to space seem a, a little closer to reality. Mm. Now, one aspect of this flight that we didn't cover last week were the records that were being broken by this flight. Uh, so as a result of this flight, it's the first time that 16 people have been in space at the same time. Obviously, there are seven people on the ISS and three people on the new Chinese space station. It was also the first time that three British people have been to space together at the same time as Richard Branson, Dave McKay and Colin Bennett are all British citizens, which means that there have been 10 Brits in history that have gone to space, although some of those are dual citizens, so I'm not really sure where they stand. Anyway, it's nice to see for me. So this week, obviously, we've also spent a lot of time talking about Gus Grissom's suborbital flight. But after this flight, only 24 people have ever actually flown a suborbital flight. And that number is going to rise pretty quickly with more Virgin flights and the Blue Origin flights coming up. Uh, and, and two of those suborbital flights were, in fact, launch aborts of the Soyuz rocket in 1975 and 2018. So it's a fairly limited group and not something that many people have even attempted to do. The Soyuz uh, uh, suborbital launch abort flights, those were not fun. <laughs> yeah. Those were not those weren't fun ones. They weren't, you know, woo, having a great time. They, they were probably crapping on them. I, actually, let me take that back. I would be crapping on myself if that happened. So. Yeah, that's not a very big fraternity. So it'll be interesting to see how big that number is going to get pretty soon. I, I'll be real. I, I would take one Absolutely. of them, Definitely. I, I wouldn't turn it down. Which gets to the next point. <laughs> yeah, which gets us to our next point. Um, after the flight, uh, Branson announced that they're raffling off two tickets for a future flight. Uh, the sweepstake will take place at the end of September, and you have until September 1st to enter. Uh, entry is free, but you can purchase extra entries by donating uh, via the website with donations going towards Space for Humanity, a not-for-profit organization which aims to cultivate a movement to expand access to space for all humanity. It was founded by Dylan Taylor, who you may remember from episode 35, where we talked to the makers of the High Frontier documentary about Gerard K. O'Neill. Uh, Dylan was an executive producer on that. Yeah, and another one of our former guests, Sarah Crudas, is also a board member of that organization. So we are very much in favor of what they do. So, Emily, are you are you going to enter? I'm going to enter. Uh, you know, I'm just going to enter. I'm sorry. I, I, I would seeing the I know some people were listening to this and they probably thought it was corny, you know, as his speech about dreams and stuff. But I'll be real. I started missing up during that because if I was in that position sit in that seat and you know you you take the straps off and you float up i i think i would just be like the most I, I just my my face can't oh my god i i would there's no words that's like the <laughs> that is there's no words that's like the what do i do after yeah exactly <laughs> what do i do afterwards like, yeah, yeah that's like the it's like the fulfillment of your dream you know you're sort of like okay now that's over and i did it you know yeah i get it i get it now obviously the uh bulk of conversation online and in the media has been about the fact that billionaires are going to space and we covered that enough last week yeah uh but it is still a little bit frustrating after all you know in that in the back of that plane there was four of them and three of them weren't billionaires so this is opening that space up to to other people and this drawer is another example of 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 how people like you and i may actually end up going to space without spending needing quarter of a million dollars or, or whatever it is so yeah i just want to go just just let me go if people want to uh 
enter for me, that would be great. Thanks. I know. I would love to go. Uh, I would love to be a first journalist in space, man, or first United States journalist in space. I guess would would I don't yeah I don't think there I think there was a journalist from I want to say Japan who went to space on Mir. I think like almost thirty years ago in the nineties or something like that. I vaguely remember reading about him uh, because I don't think he had a. I think he was sick or something during it. I don't know. I vaguely remember reading about this years ago, so I could have gotten the details a bit wrong. But I'm like, man, it's time to send a, a U.S. journalist to space now. So let's do it. I, I'm a non-smoker. I don't drink. Come on. <laughs> let's do it. I have a few health issues, but, you know, I can survive for about five minutes weightless. I'll be all right. I think that's the beautiful thing about this, this kind of flight, though, isn't it? Yeah. Is that it is only short. Because space sickness is real, right? People do go up there. Yes. Once they get in orbit, suddenly their stomach goes a bit. Well, if it happens, you're coming back down straight away anyway, you know, and your 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 body probably doesn't have a time to adjust to that idea of, of being all over the place like it does when you're in orbit. So this is probably a good way for lots of normal people to experience space without worrying about chucking up all over a spacecraft that that you need to then live in for a week or four days or whatever i'm sure on the suborbital flights you could probably still get yeah you could probably still get going to be travel sickness yeah they probably give you a bag yeah absolutely uh but it's not like you're then gonna have to live amongst all of that stuff you're coming straight back down for it to be cleaned up i've I've heard space sickness on like a space station isn't fun because usually it goes on for a couple days because your body um i'm gonna get bleeped now on skylab i read it usually went on for a couple days because it was such a large volume yeah not all of them got space sick i want to emphasize that because some of them didn't i think ed gibson um and joe Kerwin did just fine when they got up there and then you know you got someone like bill pogue who was a you know, a Air Force hotshot, you know, pilot did all this aerobatic flying and stuff, and he got sick. Yeah. So it's really impossible to, to know who's going to get sick. Exactly, exactly. And it, it so uh, yeah, it, it, at least on one of those, you know, sort of ballistic flights or parabolic type flights or whatever, where they just kind of do a jump and come back down. It's probably like, okay, I can puke in a bag and come back home. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I still want to go. Anyway, uh, that's it for the news this week. We'll have more news stories next week. To all you kids down there, I was once a child with a dream, looking up to the stars. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults looking down to our beautiful, beautiful Earth. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. So that's it for another episode. Next week, we're going to be bringing you an interview with none other than Fred Hayes, the command module pilot of Apollo 13. But we're not going to talk about that mission at all. (laughs) Uh, Also, we're going to be talking more about Wally Funk's flight on the first crewed mission of the Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket, which is due to take place on Tuesday the 20th. So keep your eyes peeled for the videos of that online as well. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope I'll be seeing lots of you at Space Fest this weekend. Uh, If you see me, please say hello. And don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.